Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. So I'm going to start in prayer. Um, I'm going to plagiarise Paul because he says it far better than me. Uh, My prayer is this, that he... Jesus will lay out all of the riches of his glory to give you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being, that the king may make his home in your hearts through faith, that love may be your root, your firm foundation, and that you may be strong enough with all of God's holy ones to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the king's love, though actually it's so deep that no one can really know it. So may God fill you with all of his fullness. So to the one who is capable of doing far, far more than we can ask or imagine, granted the power which is working in us, to him be the glory in the church and in King Jesus to all generations and to the ages of ages. Amen. Um, so today, I'm not, I'm not really aiming at a preach. Um, I know it's unusual for me. Uh, but I just want to share with you some of uh, my thoughts uh, from recent weeks. Um, basically, a whole bunch of things have kind of been colliding in my brain. Um, so I want to share with you a bit about the good news, because Steve's etched that into my psyche now. Uh, the number of times he's repeated that phrase, it's burnt into my brain. And I want to share with you about suffering, Um And my main outcome is not to particularly teach you anything. Uh, I'm going to throw some thoughts out there. uh, And I'd consider it a win if it made you think. If it made you go away and really wrestle with some some things I'm going to throw out. Um, So I've been um, thinking about what the gospel really is. So last week we did a discussion around what is the good news. And we, we spoke about good news with the little g as in... You know, just good news that might turn up in a newspaper or whatever. But we also spoke about the good news with a capital G, the gospel, the, the evangelion that, that we proclaim. And what, what's the link? What, what are those things? Um, so, so what is the gospel? Uh, because we did a discussion last week, I'm not going to put you on the spot this week. Um, but, you know, like, uh, so we all know, like, I've had a poorly family uh, for about as long as I can remember. Uh, I can't remember a day when I've woken up when Nick's not been in pain. Um... And she can't remember a day where she's not been in pain either. Um, I've had a, a, a friend that I've only recently made as a friend uh, who died. Uh, and that absolutely crushed me. That, that broke my heart. Um, I've been inspired by Steve just talking about good news. And, and, and this phrase, that it's another earworm that Steve's given me. Uh, all things being made new. Um, and in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about this other thing. Steve's fault again about what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. Uh, this, this will probably be the next sermon series. But this has been kind of bubbling under. All of these different uh, thoughts have been kind of coalescing in my imagination, in my reading, in my prayer, uh, in my meditation. And somehow they've all kind of created something uh, within me. So humbly and prayerfully, I just want to submit my thinking to you um, what is the gospel? What is the good news with a capital G? What are we as Christians actually proclaiming? Have we, have we ever sat down and thought about that? Um, what is the, the evangel that we, we are given to proclaim? 
Because the thing is, is that I think that we're all a little bit unsure. Mm. We don't talk about it much because it's a little bit embarrassing. But I hold my hand up and say, you know what? Sometimes I'm actually really unsure what I'm, what I'm supposed to be saying to people. Yeah. It's a little bit messed up. It's a little bit disparate. And because I don't have that confidence that I actually know what I'm talking about, because I don't think that it hangs together very well. There's a little bit over here about God being good. There's something about healing. There's something about Jesus. There's something about justification by faith. You know, Jesus was nailed to a cross that you can go to heaven when you die. There's something around that. But somehow I don't feel that confident in proclaiming it. You know, like, I don't know if you ever had that thing where, where preachers used to come in and then an evangelism crusade and you'd always be a bit like, oh man, that's a bit awkward. I don't want to stand in town and try and strike up a conversation with someone and try and, it feels like I'm trying to sell them a car and I just want them to say yeah I want to close the deal always be closing the ABCs of sales always be closing get them to say yes and then move on come on take a track go and, and that always feels slightly awkward it feels slightly off so what is actually the good news with a capital G and how, how does that filter into what is good news with a little g How do those two things interact? So, for me, I'm a little bit unsure. Sometimes I think, have I included everything? Is it really just about Jesus dying for our sins and that's it? And then somehow, after I die, there's something good that will happen. I mean, that, that seems to me, that asks, that, that begs the question from me, like, why did Jesus live? Why, why didn't they just crucify a baby and be done with it? it? It was God lacking imagination about how salvation might actually work, that it required just that. That was the whole business. That's the sum total of our proclamation. Is heaven when you die really good news? I find it a bit lacking. And I, sometimes I wonder, have I included everything? Is that all there is to it? Is there more to it? Like, where, do we, where does discipleship fit in? Where does church fit in? Where, where does actually being a good person fit in? Where does being a follower of Jesus fit in to that Jesus now to a cross, die for my sins, go to heaven when you die thing? And, and it, it nerves me. Uh, I'm, I'm being honest. I'm not trying to set up a, 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 put, a counterpunch, you know, to, to build a point. I'm just being honest. Does, does it, is it coherent? Is my faith coherent? Is, is the gospel, that I, what I think the gospel is, is that coherent? Is it intellectually honest? Or does it actually come up lacking when scrutinised by anybody? And because of uh, my friend dying, and you wonder what you say in the face of that. Because to me, like, a lot of that doesn't sound like good news to his family. Have you ever uh, been to a funeral with a, a real fundamentally evangelical Christian where they try and evangelise the family of the dead person? Believe in Jesus, because if you don't, you'll go to hell when you die. That sounds like bad news. That sounds like very, very bad, uncomfortable news. The entirety of creation is broken and fractured, we are told. It's subject to futility in Romans 8. And it's done in all sorts of complex ways. One of the things that I find about Christianity, pop Christianity particularly, is that it reduces everything into snappy phrases. 
And the problem with that is that you can remember it and you can tweet it and you can meme it, but actually it comes up lacking because there's no complexity to it. Life is not a meme. It's not that simple. And the problem is, is when we want to market a message, you completely nullify the message. <coughs> Creation is broken and fractured in all sorts of complex ways, ways that we actually don't understand. And we don't appreciate how this complicated web of life that God has created, that God has woven, we don't understand how that all works together. But God talks about working all things together for our good. But our, our imagination of what all means is not the same as what God imagines it to be. We don't understand how one thing can knock onto another, th ripple through the generations, ripple through all the creation, all the way around the world. The creation that was once declared good in Genesis is now subjected to futility. It's subject to sin and death and sickness and disease and violence and exploitation and evil and just sheer chance. Just sheer bad luck. That also exists. And these things, sickness, death, disease, sin, violence, exploitation, evil and chance have kind of coalesced into like some inscrutable powers that we don't know where to start with. Sometimes they seem so monolithic that we don't know where to begin. And from that list of things that are wrong, we pick one. And then we, f we malform our theology and our idea of God around it. Because if the only problem that God deals with is sin, I suggest that God is entirely inadequate for the role of being creator and lord of everything. Because when we say sin is the only problem and the fractured broken creation and violence and exploitation are secondary, then we say, well, what the important thing is is that we get people right with God. And therefore, everything is about justification. Everything is about atonement. And, and then there are secondary things that we might squeeze in. So in our particular stream of faith, we want to squeeze in something about healing and something about the manifestation of the Spirit. And so the first thing is get saved, and then those good things can happen. But the important thing is, is that you go to heaven when you die. But the problem with that is that when it comes to violence and exploitation, we don't have a great deal to say. <coughs> because when you're dealing with somebody that's been exploited, or that's been on the receiving end of violence, you're a sinner and you need to get saved is not good news and it doesn't deal with anything. But I think God has things to say to that. And I think that we've constructed our gospel around some tiny chunk of the actual truth. Because it isn't good news if it's just that small thing. It doesn't make me think that I need to share this with somebody who's in pain right now. Because that isn't good news. I'm sorry, God. But it isn't good news. That, that thing, you know, for sure, I completely believe that we need to be saved. I completely believe that we need our sin dealt with. I completely believe in justification by faith, by the grace of God alone. I completely believe that there is a heaven when we die. I do not believe that is all there is to the gospel. Because if that is all there is to the gospel, then that is not good news to, to most of the world. And I believe that God cares about all of creation. 
And the thing with it is, is if we take one thing out of that list and then find a solution, the solution is Jesus dying on the cross, then it means that we can tolerate everything else. As long as we get your sin sorted, we can deal with the cancer. As long as we get your sin sorted, then we can deal with the systematic injustice that goes on in the countries, the economic inequality. We can deal with that. We can deal with the exploitation of the earth. And actually, we can bend our theology so much because we've dealt with the main thing that we can actually make excuses for those things. We can say why they're allowed or why we don't need to bother about it because the only thing that we need to care about is this thing and we've dealt with that. And so we can have um, we can have the Rwandan genocide. We can have churches of one tribe versus churches of another go and butcher each other. And that's okay because when they die, they go to heaven because they've said that Jesus is Lord. So we can cope with the violence and the genocide because we've dealt with the important thing. And that doesn't sound like good news. For most of us, we have a gospel that focuses on just this one item and we, we fit our theology around it, this justification item. But I think the gospel is far bigger than that. And in my recent kind of musings and reflections, like I just I'm just convinced now that it is bigger and it is better. And all of us would agree with that. Like, I'm not suggesting that your gospel is this limited thing and that you fully swear to that and that's all and you're going to throw stones at me at the end of this. Like, it is a bit like teaching grammar to suck eggs, as they say. N.T. Wright suggests that reflecting on the gospel as just a simple matter of justification and atonement is a bit like, this is a really, really boring example, but he is a theologian, so they do this, is a bit like focusing on the commentary to Birmingham part of the journey on a train on the London to Manchester train. The only reason why I remember that is because it had Coventry in it. Yes, and T. Wright mentions Coventry. But that's what it's like, isn't it? We have this tiny, we, we, we focus, the most important bit is the Coventry to Birmingham journey. But the train goes from London to Manchester. The story is far bigger. And I think that's actually a really good example. Justification by faith is part of the journey. Absolutely, 100%. But the journey is so much bigger than that. The story is so much better than that. I contend, as Paul prays in Ephesians, that Jesus fills all in all, that his love is deeper, wider, higher than we can ever understand. And it's not because Jesus doesn't want us to understand it. He's not saying, I'm going to make this so difficult to understand. I'm going to make this so complicated for you to wrap your brain around that you'll never understand it because that makes me feel good. I'm going to be so impressive that you cannot comprehend it. No, it's just so vast yeah. that we just couldn't hope to comprehend it. Like it, it it's like when, um, you know, when they talk about the debt of the world and it runs into the trillions and the trillions. It's like, we have no comprehension of what a trillion is. You know what I mean? As soon as it gets above six figures, it's a bit like, it's beyond my grasp. And that's what Jesus' love is like. That's what the gospel, the good news, and I am kind of equating there, by the way, love and the gospel. It's so vast that we just... It loses all meaning almost. But the thing is, is that this love of Christ, not even death, can separate us from it. Yeah. Yeah. Not even death can separate us from it. 
He is always with us. He is always for us. He is always present with us. Even though I go into the depths of the grave, God promises to be with me. Even if I had the wings of a dove and I flew to the farthest shore, the psalmist tells me, God is already there. Death cannot separate me from him. His love is there. He's always present. He has sworn never to leave me nor forsake me. Even in the darkest dark, God is there. Even in the abyss, God is there. And therefore, because it's so vast, we should never stop discovering more and more of the good news. To say that we nailed it in the 1600s when Luther came out with his statement of sola fide, by faith alone. I'm telling you that I think that God is a little bit better than that. Back in 2014, uh, when I was starting to get serious about being intellectually honest about my faith, to actually say, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't sound right, and to actually not be cowed by people saying, well, that's unbelief if you ask questions of God. Um, I encountered a theologian called Michael Hardin. I think pretty much most of us in this room will at least be passingly familiar with him. Um, And he was attempting a social experiment uh, by doing open theology on social media. So most of us will have encountered him at this time in quite an angry mode, I think, uh, at least quite um, argumentative. He's completely chilled out, by the way, now. Um, uh, But over the period of time, I've interacted with him quite a lot, um, and he's really helped helped me with just like some questions I've had. I just pinged them to him, and he's been really cool, actually. Um, But one of the, the early posts that I ever read went along the lines of this. If your gospel cannot be proclaimed in the gates of Auschwitz, then it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that is an absolutely um, huge statement. That is a gritty statement. And if that does not challenge you to the pit of your stomach, then you need to rethink what I've just said. On Monday, just gone, it marks 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. The Holocaust, which the Jewish people called Hashoah, the calamity, the calamity, raises massive question marks over all theology, over all God talk. The Holocaust is a massive question mark to say, can God be really good? That is a watershed moment in the history of man thinking about God. Um, I remember uh, walking around the Imperial War Museum and they've got a Holocaust exhibit there. And me and Nick were walking behind two Hasidic Jews, guys with the big hats. And they were staring intently at every little bit and they were reading through the lists of names to find their relatives. And that was just, what does Jesus have to say to those two Hasidic Jews? What is the gospel? And Michael Hadden, I think, is right. If the gospel cannot be proclaimed honestly and genuinely in the gates of Auschwitz, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should not sound trite or twee or lacking in sympathy. It should not be vacuous or insipid, things that we can just chant or meme. It should be deep and meaningful because Christ fills all in all. 
the whole of creation. Nor should it be the bad news. They deserved it. They're in hell now. Let that be a warning to you that you might get saved. That is not what the gospel is. That's a kick when somebody's down. That is exactly the problem of Job's counsellors. Well, Job, you ever thought that you might actually have deserved that? Which God roundly condemns in no uncertain terms in the book of Job. God condemns that sort of advice. Instead, let us contemplate what the good news could actually be. I'm going to get to some really naughty statements, by the way, in a minute. If the gospel is simply sin management, then we've got nothing to say to most of the people on this planet, to people exploited, to people who are victims. The only thing that we can possibly say, if that's all our gospel is, is you're a sinner and you need to get saved. And that is not compelling in any way, sort of, shape or form. It could be true. And I'm not saying it's not true. But that is not good news. And that does not reveal the God of love that the Bible reveals. At some point, there is a breakdown between what we proclaim and what we believe, essentially. It doesn't show any resemblance to Jesus and it doesn't inspire anybody to resemble Jesus, to be a Christian, little Christ, Christ followers. At best, if that's what it is, we could just say, well, Jesus died for you and you should be thankful and, and do something about it. Okay, here's a really daft statement. With all of that gravitas and pathos, here's some levity now. That's how the good news works, right? We have to compare it with something, something heavy. We give something trite at the end of it. Something occurred to me in my musings that I've never come across before in my whole Christian life. As, as many books as I've read, this has never really come to me until N.T. Wright really slapped me in the face with it. Not literally, I was reading a book of this. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the word gospel isn't a genre of literature when it refers to those four books of the Bible. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, gospel, the gospel. What is in those four books is the gospel. It, it wasn't a fancy name as a title. They actually tell us what the good news is. Too often we make the mistake of going to Paul to find some abstract theology about technical terms and say that's the gospel. So we'll go to Romans and we'll talk about justification by faith and we'll bypass Jesus and the story of Jesus' life completely. But the gospels, the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, the good news according to Luke, the good news according to John, actually tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. So let us, um, you know, just in case I'm spiralling out of control here into heresy, um, let us just look at... Uh, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. So this is Mark, the earliest of the Gospels that we have. This is where the good news starts. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's Son. So Mark starts off with a pretty blatant statement. If you were ever fuzzy about what the good news is, Mark says, this is where the good news starts. And it's about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's Son. And sometimes we switch off because we've, we've, we've nailed the gospel bit now, but it's telling you that it's something to do with this guy called Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, so it's something to do with this title, this role, and it's also something to do with him being God. 
the gospel's gospel the gospel okay luke 210 don't be afraid the angel said to them look i've got good news for you news which will make everybody very happy good news with great joy for all people the good news is not just for christmas some some famous brilliant preacher said so somehow the gospel is the story of jesus christ who is the messiah that's his vocation that's his role and he is the son of god and it's for everybody and it should bring joy matthew 423 This is talking about Jesus now. He went through the whole of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So the good news is also something to do with this kingdom. Comma. Not and, as if it's a separate clause. Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, comma, healing every disease and every illness among the people so something about the good news is this ushering in of a kingdom that contains healing restoration of all people and then this is the this is the thing that brings it all together and so matthew 28 18 jesus came towards them and addressed them all authority in heaven and on earth he has said has been given to me so that you must go and make all the nations into disciples. Baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And look, I'm with you even every single day, even till the end of the age. Jesus has been enthroned as a king and he has a kingdom. That's why he has all authority. It isn't just some arbitrary, oh, I've got it now. I picked it up at the spa down the road. And I have all authority. I didn't like this authority, so I gave it to you and I'll go get some other stuff. No, Jesus is enthroned as king over all creation. He is taking back his creation as king. That's what Messiah means. He's taking back what is rightfully his and he's re-establishing his kingdom, his rule, his reign. And it includes the healing. It also includes us doing something it's not jesus unilaterally doing these things i have authority so i'm giving it to you god works in relationship god gives away power we see that in genesis 1 2 and 3 god doesn't work unilaterally he works in relationship he works interdependently he's not amassing power to himself he's distributing everything about god is love and that distributes power that enables other people to do things really See, we make, we make that mistake where we go and say it's justification by faith. We've got that from Paul, we've got it from Romans. That's the gospel. Uh, or we might take a verse saying, um, confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. That's the gospel. That's, that's the end game. And we bypass the gospel's gospel in the gospel. And what that means is that it has nothing for us to do. But when Jesus tells you this story, well, you get healed. And you have things to do. I'm giving you, I'm enabling you. And, it, and don't miss the last bit of uh, Matthew 28 where it says, teach people to observe everything I've commanded. I'm sorry to say that the gospel isn't about your best life now. It isn't about you becoming the best you you can be. Because God is not selfish. God is not trying to make you the best version of you. God is making you into Jesus Christ. 
he's conforming you to the image of the Christ. See, the first thing we see in the Gospels is that God is not far off, overseeing creation, giving orders about how to live to please him. That's not what's in the Gospel. The Gospel is God here and now with us, enabling us, empowering us, helping us, healing us, restoring us. We do not see an angry God. Man, I'm really hacked off about your sin. I'm so hacked off that I've just got to take my vengeance out on someone. Come here, son. And then I'll be cool with you guys. I've worked it out now. We don't see a God with anger issues in the Gospel. We do not see a God who is fixated on whether we say the right things or do the right things. Jesus does not demonstrate that. He is not continuous. He does rebuke Peter for saying the wrong thing occasionally, but not all the time. He isn't telling people, you're a prostitute, love. Of course they're going to stone you. You're a tax collector. Matthew, you can't be on my team. Instead, we see a God who is intimately involved in his creation. He's working from within creation. He's not outside superintending creation. He's on the inside of creation, working outwards. This means that we have a God who is vulnerable. A God who feels pain. A God who reaches out to the marginalised and the exploited. A God who actually laments. A God who, it says, is moved with compassion, whose guts are turned painfully by the plight of the people that he sees. The word compassion in the Greek is literally um, splagnon, which is like the twisting of the gut. A very visceral image of, of compassion. A God who cries. He cries over, cried over Lazarus. He cried over Jerusalem, knowing full well that they were going to c- kill him. A God who touches the unclean and hangs around with sinners long enough to get a reputation and long enough to see them restored. We see a God who isn't so fussed about who's in or out. Who's in the holiness club? Jesus doesn't seem to have got that memo. In fact, and just in case we feel we're going to get sentimental about the love of God, Jesus does have a few choice words for some people. Jesus can offer critique. Jesus can say, you've got it blazingly wrong, guys. And he says it in no uncertain terms. Jesus doesn't pull his punches. But it's always the people that think, we're in power, we get to choose, we get to decide, we say who's in or out. We also see a God who constantly evades the spotlight. When the crowds were gathered and they wanted to make him king, Jesus disappears. He deliberately, seemingly, offends people. Got a massive crowd now. My evangelism program is going well. So, what's the most offensive thing I could say to these people right now? Well, you've got to eat my flesh, of course. And you've got to drink my blood. Who's with me? Tumbleweed. Instead, we see a God who becomes powerless, who somehow gains power in creation by suffering. Lest we move from Good Friday to Easter Sunday too quickly, this is actually how victory happens. As much as the American way wants to tell you, well, if you work hard, you deserve success, Jesus' success looks like, I'm going to feel... And I'm going to immerse myself in all the pain and brokenness and wickedness and evil and fracturedness of creation. 
and I'm going to I'm going to feel that so deeply. I could have saved the world from outside, but I've come onto the inside and from within it, and I'm going to absorb that somehow. I'm going to actually feel it. It's not some token gesture. I suffer with those who are suffering. From the inside of creation, from the vulnerable dust and suffering powerlessness of humanity, he brings forth salvation. So what I want to say is in all my rambling thoughts, that I think that the gospel writers, the gospel gospel in the gospel, I think they're telling us that the good news is that Jesus is enthroned and he reigns. And we've sang that this morning. But it's not just some arbitrary king. It's the king who was promised all along from the very beginning. Creation was always looking to King Jesus. And he is establishing his kingdom. He is taking back his, his creation. The gospel is about King Jesus and his kingdom. The kingdom has come near and is continuously unfolding. Jesus reigns, and this means something huge for everybody and everything in creation. All creation waits and groans for the manifestation of the sons of God. That we could actually look and represent and be his ambassadors truly. All creation is waiting for that, not just sinners who are aware that they need a saviour. It means, and this is where my words come up lacking. It means that in the gates of Auschwitz we can say, this was never God's plan. This is never God's desire. That for all of those you lost, for all the pain they experienced, God has experienced that with you and he weeps for you. God suffers with you and one day, one day he will establish his perfect reign and cast off this wickedness and wipe away every tear. This is what Revelation tells us. And make all things new. Now while you suffer, we, his followers, will walk with you We will support you, we will stand with you, we will protect you, we will love on you, we will cry with you, and then we will wipe your tears, we will bandage your wounds, and we will do whatever we can to overthrow the heinous institutional evils that have caused this to happen. We will call them out, we will unmask them, because this is what Jesus does, and this is what the kingdom looks like, and this is what the good news is, that Jesus is Lord. I could go on. Uh, I could talk about 1 Corinthians 15, which is, which is br- a brilliant statement by Paul, um, about Jesus overcoming death. No mention of sin. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that sin is not an issue that Jesus deals with. But the final enemy, the last enemy that Jesus defeats is death. I could also talk about why the Gospel writers and Paul, they, they talk about Jesus being the Messiah according to scriptures. And that's just because that's who he was supposed to be all along. That's where creation was supposed to be going all along. But I want to say this to finish. The gospel is far bigger than we think, far bigger than we understand, far bigger than we've been led to believe. The good news is far better news than we've ever thought. The gospel is something that we can stand and offer as comfort in the gates of Auschwitz because Jesus reigns and Jesus is with us, with his people and active from within creation. The gospel offers us real hope and real comfort and real salvation, not empty, vacuous and uncompassionate platitudes. Instead of a narrow sales pitch simply to get somebody to say yes to a set of statements about Jesus, we can enact good news, we can live out the kingdom, we can usher in creation made new. If anyone be in Christ, look right there. 
That is new creation breaking in. And so I just want to leave you with uh, a quote by uh, David Bentley Hart. It's a shame Pete's not in here, actually, because Pete's a self-confessed fanboy of David Bentley Hart. Try and catch hold of it, so I'll read it slowly. It's quite... Um, it's one of these guys that uses a thesaurus for every word, I think. A knowledge central to the gospel, the knowledge of evil, the evil of death, its intrinsic falsity, its unjust dominion over the world, and its ultimate nullity, the knowledge that God is not pleased or nourished by our deaths, that he is not the secret architect of evil, that he is the conqueror of hell, that he has condemned all these things by the power of the cross. The knowledge that God is life and light and infinite love. Fortunately, I think, we Christians are not obliged, and perhaps not even allowed, to look upon the devastation and to attempt to console ourselves or others with vacuous cant about the ultimate meaning or purpose residing in all that misery. Ours is, after all, a religion of salvation. Our faith is in God, who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness and waste of death, and the forces, whether calculating malevolence or imbecile chance, that shatter living souls, so that we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. That we are not only permitted, but required to believe that cosmic time as we know it, through all the immensity of its geological ages and historical epochs, is only a shadow of true time, and that this world is only a shadow of a fuller, richer, more substantial, more glorious creation that God intends. At such times, to see the goodness indwelling in all creation requires a labour of vision that only a faith in Easter can sustain. But it is there, effulgent and fading, innocent but languishing in bondage to corruption, groaning and in anticipation of a glory yet to be revealed, both a promise of the kingdom yet to come and a portent of its beauty. Until that final glory, however, the world remains divided between two kingdoms where light and darkness, life and death grow up together and await harvest. In such a world, our portion is charity, our sustenance is faith, and so it will be until the end of days. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. Excuse me. <clears throat> now we are able to rejoice that we are not saved through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace. That God will not unite all of history's many strands into one great synthesis, but he will judge much of history as false and damnable. That he will not simply reveal some sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. Mm. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering <laughs> tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of his kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all the tears from her eyes. There will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, nor any more pain, for all the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I have made all things new. Amen.